0: Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Warm Burner Podcast. I have a very special guest for you guys. He is a ex-player and currently coaching here in the United States for the Flint City Bucks in the USL League 2. He also has multiple different championships under his belt. Some of them are two consecutive national championships in 07 and 08, two regional championships in that same year, three Michigan State Cups, as well as a Great Lakes Intercollegiate Athletic Conference title in 2016 and 18. Please welcome to the show Mr. Andy Wagstaff.
1: Thanks Justin, appreciate the uh, intro.
0: So for my viewers out there, I wanted to have my first question about your playing experience when you did grow up in England. Can you tell us a little bit about the feeling that it was being able to play for a team like Huddersfield Town and Bury FC and just just being able to be around that atmosphere?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I'm going to show my age, but it's it's quite a few years ago now. But um, yeah, I was um, my first contract that I was offered. You know, I'm not sure how much the viewers know of and listeners know about the kind of the pathway in soccer or football in England. But I was 14 when I was given my first opportunity to sign uh, what was called schoolboy forms or schoolboy contract back in back in the 80s and. Huddersfield Town were the, the club that were the, the first to offer me a contract and I, I accepted and, and was at Huddersfield Town for a couple of years. Um, Huddersfield is quite a distance from my home in, in uh, Wigan. Um, so at the age of 16, I was offered an opportunity to be a little bit closer to home and, and sign for Berry Football Club. And, you know, unfortunately, Bury are not in the, in, the, uh, in the professional ranks anymore they ran into some financial hardships a few years ago and a really sad story with, with, with how things went with Barry. But I, um, you know, back in the the late eighties, early nineties, they were, um, they were a uh, second division professional club and I was fortunate to sign for them. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, the the moment that you get that phone call um, to say that the, you know, the professional club wants to, to sign you, it's, it's pretty exciting. So when I signed the, the contract at 16, which was a, a basically a professional apprentice contract, that was a two year, a two year stint. And it was uh, it was great. And, you know, back then in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, the, the, the football clubs um, didn't quite have as much of the glamour as as some of the latest Premier League clubs have these days. And the, the, the injection of money wasn't quite the same but still the, the tradition and the history of those two clubs alone uh, goes back a hundred years and, uh, and more. So it was, uh, it was a real honor to to get that opportunity and, uh, you know, give myself a chance to to go on and, and try to be a full-time professional, you know?
0: Absolutely. I, it's something that I hope with it, at least within the United States that, with the kind of atmosphere that we're building here in the states, that we can eventually get to that 100 year mark, even though England right. will be 200 by then. <laughs> but, right, right. but um, it's definitely something that I it's it's amazing to hear that story and just to know like it like it's just amazing to to see firsthand. I mean, I mean, you were able to play at these two amazing clubs that span over a hundred years, even more than a hundred years ago. What was it like to get the call to come over here to the United States and play with Oakland university uh, with uh, the scholarship with them?
1: Yeah, it was, it was all kind of uh, interesting how it, it transpired. So originally you know, when I was getting to the end of my two year time with Berry Football Club, you know, you start to, you know, have conversations with the staff and they let you know if they're going to continue to sign you and and give you another extended contract or not. And during that year, we had six players that that Berry had signed as an apprentice professional. And so we were sort of the graduating class in sort of 1991. And um, none of us, unfortunately, none of us got offered a extended uh, full professional contract so that was disappointing um so I went off and spent a couple months training at Wigan Athletic you know went and played a game for Everton in the in the, the I think it was the B team back then a long time ago uh, Chester and a couple of other clubs Tranmere and didn't again none of them really were going to work out for me it was the same story all of the different clubs was like you know they respected me and thought I was a good player and but didn't have a ton of money to sign new players and um so I didn't get the the news I wanted and um I was now what, 18 years of age and looking for what what the next you know option was to to stay in the game and then I got told about a um a trial like a combine as you would call it in, in the states um for selected players from you know different clubs in England that had uh, managed to achieve a certain level of education and qualification in school and you know would would also be at the level to to play uh, potentially in America so there was 55 players I remember at the time it was 1991 uh, May and it was at Blackpool um football club's training ground and I went there with I think my dad mom and dad took me on the day and um I, I played. We played four games in two days, and and over those four days, oh, sorry, over those two days, the different college coaches from from the U.S. were just, you know, making notes and evaluating us. And eventually was uh, asked to go back to kind of a meeting spot with all the all the other players, and and then the college coaches uh, were also there, and and the facilitator of the event, which was the um, the Professional Footballers Association, they. Uh, they read off the names of people that the colleges were interested in. And I, I was fortunate to get named by two two colleges. One was Central Connecticut State University, uh, Division One program. A guy named uh, Sean Green at the time, he had shown interest in me. And then and then Gary Parsons uh, at Oakland University was the other college coach and spent some time talking to Gary. Sean wasn't able to be there. He, he had left to visit family in the Northeast because uh, he was originally from England. Uh, Gary was an American, uh, is an American gentleman, and uh, we met and spent some time together. And, we, you know, me and my family really liked him and um, essentially accepted a position to, to go over in, in the fall season to, to play at Oakland University. Um, and at the time, Oakland was Division Two, uh, but I was, I was educated on the process from Gary that basically, you know, a lot of high-end players play Division Two um and are every bit as good as some of the division one programs out there so i i decided to to select that as the as the uh, university for me and it was a bit surreal i remember you know having an opportunity to um to, you know to sit down with family and talk about it and i got a lot of support from from all my my close family and i think it was august the 20th 1991 i got on a plane and flew over to the USA and and um, started preseason with Oakland uh, the next day. So that was my my first uh, journey here to the US.
0: Wow. That I think when it comes to the stories of how players get time to play and just to to build their careers either as a player or a player and a coach or just players in general being able to go to another country Can be the definitive Mm -hmm. position of saying, "Hey, I'm here," and it allowed them to grow in such a way. How how do you feel being one of the players that went from England to the United States, Mm -hmm. an infant in soccer in in the soccer world? Mm -hmm. um, How important do you think that can be? for a young american here in the states wanting to maybe turn professional someday
1: yeah i mean it was um it it it's just you know the boundaries are endless now right so back then you know it was it was a lot different justin you know so i i you know i i remember thinking back to the time when i was considering my options and and i wasn't convinced about coming over because you know, it was a little bit daunting to 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 think about leaving your family at 18 and getting on a plane and going across the Atlantic. And, and at the time, I had an, an opportunity to play in Malta. Um, and I, that, that seemed a little bit more appealing to me because it was like a two hour flight. They were going to essentially fly out on a, on a private jet on a Thursday and train Friday and then play a, a game on Saturday. And back then in the in the 90s, they used to play games back to back to back in one stadium in Malta. Um, and the club that I was offered an opportunity with was Nashall Lions Um, and you know there was a a famous English player called Paul Mariner that also played for for, uh, Nashar Lions at the time so that was a unique opportunity so I really wanted to do that and the reason I wanted to do that was because a it was closer to home and b it was just professional and it I didn't have to you know take upon the challenge of going back into to to school uh, essentially a, a university so it was a bit daunting, and, and um, you know, uh, but, but looking back, it was, it was the right thing to do. And um, now that you know the, the, the borders are, are endless, I mean, there's, there's players here in the US that can go anywhere in the world and play. Um, and you know, in some instances, it, it might be good for them to leave and go and play at you know 18, 19, and 20, and, and, and jump in with pro clubs uh, over in Germany and England and Belgium and, and, and uh, all across Europe. So um yeah it goes both ways now it never used to it definitely was a one-way street of players coming from the UK or or in you know in Europe in general coming over and and um and getting scholarships to play over in the US which has really helped you know build the the overall uh brand of the game in America but now there's a lot of very talented you know as we know American players that are capable of traveling and playing all over the world and not necessarily having to go through the college system. Although I am a big believer in the college system, but I know that, you know, these days players are getting signed pro at, you know, 16, 15, 16, 17 years of age. So um, I think the opportunities are there for people now.
0: Absolutely. As you were explaining that, I was envisioning the story of Weston McKinney, the, Mm -hmm. the American kid that he ended up Rejecting a full-ride scholarship to go to I, – I forgot what the college was. It was a big college yeah. just to go over and play uh, Schalke in Germany, play for Schalke in Germany. Yeah. I, it was just an unbelievable story. And for you, being a four-year Letterman winner as well as going to the NCAA Division two semifinal in your sophomore year and final in your senior year, what was it like? to go back and coach for your alma mater uh and and just walk me through was it kind of like a a frank lampard feeling going back to chelsea or was it like a um xavi at barca like what walk me through how you felt with that
1: yeah i'd say a poor man's version of both of those guys but i appreciate the the comparison that um i think you know I was very. I had a great time at Oakland University. I was treated extremely well by by some very very special people over the time that I was there uh, as a player. Um, Gary Parsons obviously being being one of them. And then I got an opportunity to go back there actually in in 2002. I, I spent two years on the women's side with uh, the head coach at the time was Nick O'Shea, who I consider a a friend and a mentor of of of, uh, of me over the years as a coach. But then I went back again in in, um, 2012 to 2015 in that period as an assistant coach with the men's team. And then I went back again in 2019 as the associate head coach um, for for, um, just the fall season. Um, Just due to other commitments, I I had to to step down from that position. But um, yeah, it it was great. I mean... You know Oakland like I said is um, holds a special place in my heart as far as you know the the the, um, the experiences and the education and the moments that I have enjoyed um, at that university and um, to be able to go back there was was uh, was extra special um, got to work with head coach Eric Pogue on the on the men's side who's been there for many years now and has has built a powerhouse program and um, was very fortunate to to be around a lot of other really good coaches uh, during my time there. So, um, and, you know, now, you know, fast forward a number of years from where I played there, they, they became a division one program and uh, are really doing an amazing job, you know, in, in the horizon league every year, always, you know, in the, in the, in the top spots, usually compete for the championship one way or the other and making a, making an appearance in the NCAAs almost every year. So. Wow. That,
0: that is a really amazing story to even hear because doing research, I don't I, – and I'm even from the Midwest as well. I hadn't even really heard of Oakland University before this, mm-hmm. and to see the progression that they've gone through over the years as well as just their success in recent years as well, it, it is really, really amazing and something that it, – it it's a testament to – what soccer can do over here in the United States. And it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, I agree. Going to coaches specifically, I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask about one that may have had an impact on your coaching style and, and the way that you have been able to approach the game. Do you have any stories or any moments or anything in general about Martin Dobson?
1: Yeah, Martin Dobson was um, a, a very talented professional player back in the UK. And um, in nineteen, in the late eighties, he was the head coach or the manager, as they call it in England, of Barry Football Club. And I was very lucky that um, one of his chief scouts got to see me play, and I got a gentleman called Brian Edwards. Um, and Martin, you know, brought me in as a, as a as an apprentice professional for two years there at Barry. Um, and I just loved, you know, the the way that the the first team, that the very first team played, the brand of football stuck in my mind, um, and really influenced me as a as a player over the years. Um, he was a very uh, like passionate coach, and and just handled the players really well. Um, and then uh, fast forward about ten years later, he he was working at, at Bolton Wanderers Academy as the academy director, and I, I actually just reached out to him and um, you know, invited me in and we sat and had a coffee and he handed me a, a Bolton kit and I, I got a job coaching the under 10s team there at, at Bury. So it was one of my sort of first, you know, that was like 1999. That was like one of my first sort of, you know, big coaching roles back in England. And granted, I spent time going back and forth between England and America, but that was my first sort of academy coaching role um, I took the under-10s at Bolton and and did that for um, I think pretty, a little bit less than a year before I ended up going over to to to, to my uh, my beloved Liverpool.
0: Absolutely, and and with with that being said, you're a massive massive fan of Liverpool, correct? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And to just have that and and being able to be a part of the academy itself. It must have been an, uh, a really surreal moment for you.
1: Yeah, that was. Um, it, it was. It was actually a, strange how it all happened. But I, um, I was at John Moores University um, doing a doing a masters program, and um, I saw a, an advertisement to do the to go on the UEFA B license um, coaching license, and it was at, it was held at Liverpool's brand new academy in Kirby. And um, I went, applied for it, got on and went on the course. And there was like myself and everyone else was a Liverpool staff member. So it was, it was sort of unique. I got to know um, a guy called Frank McPalland who ended up being the Academy Director there. And Stuart Gelling, who was the in charge of the community in football. And um, Ian Brunskill, who has gone on and worked for the FA and was an assistant manager with Blackburn Rovers. and. And um, yeah, so that was really that was really good. I, you know, they they you know Frank approached me at the end of the week and said, "Hey, you've done a great job on this course. When you come back from the states, you know, uh, in November, why don't you give us a shout? We'd love to bring you in as a as a coach." So that's exactly what happened. So it was very uh, it was very cool to to be in the academy, and um, you know, I did design a um, a program that they that they they've been running for a number of years that was like kind of a a community outreach slash scouting program and and it's held on a sunday mornings and um uh, i'm not sure if they still do it now, but I know they were doing it up, up until a couple of years ago, so that was like um enjoyable to kind of plan that and map that one out with uh, with Stuart gelling back in you know the late nineties early early thousands um and pretty proud that they they used it for so long as well that program wow
0: to to have that under your belt of of having a program that your the club that you've supported for so long uses that has to be so surreal and and on top of that talking about coaching achievements you have both your UEFA and USSF A licenses
1: correct that is correct yeah
0: that's that's unbelievable i i know i don't want to say that if if that was your best moment or or anything, I always like to say a key moment. Was that your key moment as a coach, like saying like, wow, this is something I, I never really thought that I would be a part of? Is, is there another key moment maybe that also speaks to you when it comes to your youth coaching experience?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think uh, good question I think that the Liverpool experience was was second to none it was it was really uh, unique um and and so good to you know kind of get asked to design that that you know outreach recruitment program that I did in uh, 99 that was that was a bit surreal and then um yeah I'd say that you know the other moments that have stood out for me probably outside of the the championships which are wonderful right you mean winning you know, certainly winning our our first national championship in 2007 with my my Bloomfield Force 89 girls team was was special. Um, but I think I think one of the most proud moments from a personal accomplishment was getting the UA for a license. I I, I went on that a license at St George's in 2013, and and it was a pretty daunting course. It was. It was 13 days residential and then you you, you got a couple of assessments and then you went away and you came back a year later and did another eight days residential um and then you got you know you had to go away for about six months and then get then then get assessed so going through that whole you know couple of year program was was um stressful it you know totally got me out of my comfort zone but it was something that i felt like you know no matter what if i go on the a license in england um and fail then I'm still a better coach for that experience than I would be if I decided to not go on it because of the fear of failure so um for me it was special to get that you know to get that awarded to me um was a was an important moment in my coaching career and um i'd probably tag that with with you know some of the championships we've won and and some of the personal awards which have been nice
0: well wow, yeah i i think that is something that when it comes to coaching in the United States, that even, even for me, I've, I've only gotten my e-license if I'm not, I'm at the very beginning level of coaching when it comes to the licenses, the the time and the effort to go into something like that is Mm. unbelievable. And it's, it's, it just shows what you've done when it comes to what you've coached, being able to achieve not only that here in the united states but over in europe as well it's it's a a really really big testament and when it when when it goes to your managing at flint city
1: yeah
0: i really really wanted to ask this question because it's one that i always love to to bring up because i want to not only speak stir this pot a tiny bit but it I want to engage everyone's mind with the possibility of what the US can do mm-hmm. being from the USL League 2 what do you see the US can improve on and get better when it comes to the the great sport of
1: soccer yes great great question i think um first and foremost i think if there was a way to sort of streamline the pathway you know, the, 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 there's the, there's good and bad of having so many different leagues and and so many different professional levels. And uh, the good is that there's there's lots of opportunities for for players. Uh, the, the, the negative, in my opinion, is that we just we just all got to get on the same page. And I think with so many leagues spread out across the country, you know, competing for the best players, it um, you know it, it doesn't make it as streamlined as you would want and um, so the pathway is a little bit more clear um but that takes time and um, so from an organizational perspective I think that we you know there's kind of a fight to to be supreme in in that area with leagues and obviously we know that on the on the male side that the MLS you know rules the roost and USl is is uh working you know ne- next in line with the championship and league one league two. But then you've also got this new league, you know, these new leagues like Nisa that have been around a year or two that are, um, you know, professional, I believe, and then a million different amateur leagues. So I think, you know, if, if the powers that be could come together and try to organize and come together and agree on a pathway and work together, we would probably be, uh, you know, better collaborative, collaboratively rather than, you know, everyone pulling in different directions. So I think from an organisational standpoint, that's what I that's what I believe. And then from a player standpoint, a development standpoint, I think we're on the right path. I mean, the players that, that we're, we're bringing through the system in America now are not only athletic, which has always been, the you know, the American players have always been considered very athletic. Um, but now they're starting to build up a better game understanding and, and overall football and IQ. And I'd say that that's the one area that, um, as as we evolve as a nation, as a soccer nation, you know, the players are getting smarter and more intelligent. And I think that's the only difference right now between between the US and maybe um you know some of the top European or South American teams. It's just that game IQ and understanding that at the top level of our US players, they have it in in abundance. But it's the next tier of players that we need to sort of continue to push to to, to gain that valuable experience and knowledge uh, of the game. So, but I think it's not far away. I mean, now with the exposure of, uh, you know, games on every single TV channel all the time and, um, you know, sponsors getting behind the game on the male and female side of things, um, it's only a matter of time that, that that will be, the U.S. will be right there on par with, with and uh, maybe even beyond some of the European countries, South American countries.
0: Absolutely. i I actually agree with you, and when it comes to the uh, – I, I don't want to say this as a negative either, but when it comes to the USL League 2, I, I have – been watching and and supportive and at least trying to do something having to do with soccer for the previous 10 maybe 12 years right. and it's even difficult for me to try and understand the usl league too because there's so many different leagues and and as you had already mentioned there's a plethora of other organizations outside of the usl and amateur uh, levels it it is a a it is a breeding ground right now of so many different organizations and i think that is one of the things that we do need to do organizationally is bring those all together and right. to to try and and find that way even though that that way may not be may not be the way that everyone goes eventually like for what we had already talked about before somebody might go over to europe or in in south america or maybe even in asia to go play Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it it, it's a it is a better way to get further in the game here in the united states and i think that's one of the things as well looking at the sport there are so many different people that watch the barclays premier league 10 times more than ms or mls teams yeah and and having that kind of exposure is is ginormous and i i wanted to nitpick a little more as well or not nitpick but pick your brain when it came to the philosophies as well if there's one key note that you could give a player right now no matter what level they're playing at mm-hmm. that can improve their game mm-hmm. what would it be
1: you know from from my perspective depending on what age you are but the the younger you are the more you focus on getting better technically um and you don't need to necessarily go out and um you know just do private lessons all the time although I think they are they are helpful you know, you just need to get the ball out and hit it against the wall for long periods of time and juggle it and, play, you know, play with your friends. Just that's, you know, I know it's been talked about a lot, but, you know, street soccer is where a lot of the, the best players in the world came from, whether it be the streets of Brazil or the, the back alleys of, you know, England and Scotland. It, it, it was it was done from grabbing your friends and your mates and saying, hey, let's, let's go and play. And, and you know what? You didn't always have equal teams and you didn't always have goalposts with beautiful nets and incredibly grass, incredible grass fields. I mean, it was just, let's grab a ball if we can find one and let's just go and play. And we used to do it for hours on end. Right. And um, the more we can, you know, cultivate that environment um, and manufacture that environment here in the U S the, the quicker and more accelerated will be the development of the players in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. When it comes to the, Getting your friends together it, it's it, i I remember all the time going to when I went to college playing soccer, the very little I did it, it, at the um uh, extramural soccer level. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things if you just had two pairs of shoes and a soccer ball, that's all you needed yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, all it. and it was just uh, it was just amazing to even have those experiences. I wanted to. End on a fun little exchange of at least digging into your mind when it comes to Liverpool specifically. Yeah. Um. They haven't had the greatest run so far at the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. If there's one signing in January, any signing at all, that you would want Liverpool to get, what signing would it be?
1: Jude Bellingham. <laughs> Ooh. Right. I really want Jude Bellingham. I mean, don't get me wrong, if I could get Erling Haaland off city, I would. But we all know that's impossible. Um, yeah, Jude Bellingham I think would be a massive addition to the midfield for us. Um I know he's a player that we've been looking at for two or three years now, and um he's one that I would love to bring in. I think he'd be massively helpful to the to the middle of midfield for us. Um I know we're we're a little bit we're suffering in the back a little bit, um, but that's just a, That might just be burnout, a little bit of fatigue mentally and physically from some of the players there. So I know that Klopp will probably find a way to insert players into that back four and to, to refresh it whenever he can. So the, we're, we're good there. Um, but the middle of midfield just needs a little bit of a, of a boost right now. And I think uh, Jude would be amazing.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jude just in general is just a really, really, really good young midfielder that would oh, yeah. improve a lot of sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to be a hundred percent honest as well, you, you're not wrong when it comes to the Holland situation as well. <laughs> right. yeah. I, I I think I think a lot of teams over in the in the Premier League would have loved to have Holland. And and so a, a tiny bit, a tiny, tiny bit about me, uh, I I am a, a Manchester City fan which (laughs) I I I try I try not to say it too much because a lot of people like oh bandwagon right and so I that's that's why I don't bring it up as much but that was one of the genuine scares for me going into like before the summer transfer window this previous Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. if Holland went to Liverpool
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. oh yeah. we no.
0: would have been absolutely it, it would have been really bad it would have yeah. been really really bad
1: yeah it would have been uh yeah i mean you know i uh i think liverpool's got a little bit of a cap on what they can spend on players and although we've had some big money signings um unfortunately we just don't have the the deep pockets that city have and uh but in but you know it, all credit where it's due, I mean, uh, you know, Pep's brought in some phenomenal players and he's an amazing coach. So I think, um, you, you, you could also spend a lot of money and get it completely wrong, which, you know, we know a number of clubs out there that have done that. Um, so thankfully Liverpool have not done that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that will be, you know, I think we just got to strengthen up that midfield a little bit this summer.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It, it,
0: when it comes to Liverpool's midfield, just in general, it's all, it, it is very strong. Already, and mm-hmm. just adding somebody like Jude Bellingham is just an unbelievable – it would be an unbelievable acquisition for them in January. Oh, sure. um, so with that being said, one last question for you, yeah, and it might be the toughest one yet. Okay. If you could play professionally mm-hmm. besides Liverpool, even though I know for a fact that you would love to play for Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Is there another team that you would want to play for? Or is that love strictly for Liverpool?
1: <laughs> well, look, if I got a chance to play professionally um, at a top club in the world, then um, I, you know, if it, and if it, it could not be Liverpool, I think that my choice would most likely be uh, Barcelona.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. OK, OK. That That's still a strike. Regardless of what the choice was, it was going to be a good one. And yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I I think I think that Liverpool is is just a, a phenomenal club in general when it comes to the level of just the commitment from the players, the yeah. the history behind it as well. You have multiple league titles, cups, every everything that you could even imagine. Right. It's just uh it's amazing. And that's going to wrap up the episode for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it very, very much. I, I genuinely enjoyed it. If you wanted to shout out anything, Andy at all, uh, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate you inviting me on here, Justin. Um, obviously love, love doing these podcasts or they're, they're always a lot of fun. And, um, uh, no, I just want to, you know, want to wish you the best with your, uh, with your interviews, this is great that you're putting that out there and, um, get reaching out and trying to expand, you know, people's love for, for the game. So, um, however I can help, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, excited to, to listen back to it.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you a million times. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Stay safe, have fun, love soccer, and I'll see you guys next week. Ciao everyone.